is a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Hello and welcome to Dream With Mind and Heart. I'm Ryan Silberstein and with me is Megan Bojarski. Hi. And we are your hosts through this chronological tour of every Disney movie ever. This week we continue our third very British season called Adventures in Literature with Disney's first feature-length Robin Hood movie, 1952's The Story of Robin Hood, which is also sometimes called Robin Hood and His Merry Men. I don't know. And it's not the animal one. No, it's not the animal one. That's what we need to, to preface with. This is not the animal one that everyone actually has heard of before. And this is 20 years earlier and has actual people in it. And it, it is funny because, you know, when we were prepping this episode, Megan, you were like, oh, like, I don't have a ton of notes for Robin Hood. And I was like, how do we not have a ton of notes for Robin Hood? Like, everybody loves that movie now. Because even I momentarily forgot where we were in the, in the, in the Disney timeline. We actually have two specific sources for this episode that we want to make sure that we highlight in addition to our usual book and uh, other sources that we use there is a a blog disneysrobin.blogspot.com which has a lot of information and then medievalhollywood.ace.fordham.edu that is the medieval hollywood website which is maintained by someone at fordham that is still online even though the disclaimer says it's not being updated anymore it still has a ton of information about medieval movies in general that i find very informative so both of those were very helpful resources and again we may go back to them uh, when we do eventually get to the robin hood starring the sexy fox version of robin hood uh, I almost said Foxy fo- Foxy Fox, and I was like, "That's that is actually redundant." So I had to I had to change it to Sexy Fox. Somehow, I I like Foxy Fox better than Sexy Fox because something just feels really gross about about Sexy Fox to me. But I am aware of the internet conversations around this movie, so you're you're not wrong. It just I don't like it. <laughs> Well, we'll see how you feel when we get there in another, I don't know, two or three seasons of the show. (laughs) Anyway, as we mentioned in our previous episode on Treasure Island, the reason that these were produced in England was because there's a bunch of money that RKO had made off of Disney movies uh, during the war and as part of the sort of post-war demilitarization and sort of trying to build back up. Western Europe under the Marshall Plan, any money made in the UK had to be spent in the UK to sort of help get their economy back on track. And so this appropriate source material was adapted and shot all in England. Of course, this goes back to being one of Walt's ideas to make a a Robin Hood movie. Of course, the most well-known version of Robin Hood prior to the Sexy Fox version is of course the Errol Flynn version from 1938. I feel like if you if 
someone says Robin Hood and they say, no, not the Fox one. <laughs> like Errol Flynn is, is basically what I, I picture as Robin Hood, even though like I had not seen that movie until only a couple of years ago. But I feel like I had seen enough like clips of that movie and that movie, I feel like just almost sort of is like the ur text of the medieval swashbuckling movie. You know what I mean? Like the like lots of sword fights and castles and people like sliding down tapestries and swinging from chandeliers. And, you know, it's all the kind of action you would expect on a pirate ship, but in a castle. I actually basically hadn't ever seen a Robin Hood movie. So like I knew what you know about Robin Hood. But just from looking at some of the clips and from reading all of the discussions about it, Disney knew that version very well. Disney knew what he was doing when he wanted to, uh, we will say homage that movie. You, you could potentially say uh, steal things, but you know, what, whatever. To be fair, he was also working from his own direct source material. So this is something that we don't usually see too much talked about, but this movie was actually inspired by the novel The Story of Robin Hood and His Merry Men by John Finmore, which came out in 1929. So in addition to kind of visually and spiritually being kind of the successor to Errol Flynn, they had this, you know, novel source, and then they kind of did their own thing with some of the other elements of it. So there's, there's a couple of major reasons for how they changed it. So when Walt first announced that he was going to make a Robin Hood movie, he actually announced that he wanted to do a more historically accurate version. And apparently the people of Nottingham, which is a real place, for, for those of the Americans that don't like totally get that. I, I say that like I'm not American. <laughs> Anyway, so the, the people of Nottingham thought that was really cool. So the current sheriff of Nottingham, current to, you know, 1950s, not current to now, invited Walt and his crew to come to their city, where they have a collection of thousands of books of Robin Hood lore. He basically said, I would love to, but I'm Walt Disney and that's hard. So here's some other people. And so he specifically sent Richard Todd, who was going to star in the movie, and then the producer, Purse Pierce, to go visit Nottingham. They visited in spring 1951. They got to meet the Lord Mayor, the Sheriff, various other people, and were basically given a tour of the town and of their resources, where they really got to kind of dig into the historical background. So... Generally speaking, if I say, hey, I'm going to watch a historical movie, you're not expecting Disney. And they weren't really thinking Disney in the 50s as a good historical movie. But that was definitely a vein that Walt was trying to get into as we kind of explore some of these, especially with the, the British projects, but also his, you know, growing interest in the documentaries. He was starting to kind of try to get into these more authentic narratives. There's, there's arguments to be made about whether this was true or not. But I will say, as someone who uh, studied ancient and medieval history and who watched it with somebody who has a bachelor's and almost a master's 
in ancient and medieval history, it, it does a decent job, especially like the look. The look is great in this. By and large, the, the costumes, the designs, they're all surprisingly accurate. The story gets weird, but isn't that always how it goes? So kind of going between the Errol Flynn version, the novel by John Finnamore, and then just the various historical and pseudo-historical uh, elements, we kind of get two interesting additions. So one of them that I think was actually kind of cool is the addition of Robin Hood's father. So instead of basically just having Robin Hood be his own figure, he starts off as the kid of a well-respected man, which becomes kind of this origin story for his morals and his motivations as his father is essentially killed by the sheriff causing this rivalry. Robin Hood's father also does some of the tasks that were done by Errol Flynn's Robin Hood. So while they weren't the same actor, there was kind of this idea that it was the child of Robin Hood becoming Robin Hood kind of vibe, which to me is just so similar to like the CW DC TV shows where they did things like having John Wesley Shipp, who played the Flash in the 90s, become the father of Barry Allen in kind of the modern series. So I thought that was kind of a cool early version of that where they were kind of honoring the idea of past Robin Hoods in their Robin Hood. The other pretty major deviation is that they added Eleanor of Aquitaine as a pretty major figure, which essentially was, as, as far as I can discern at least, their way of trying to not talk about communism because the movie well when we're talking about somebody who steals from the rich and gives to the poor that sounds a lot like a redistribution of wealth which could be considered socialism or communism but as we all know Walt couldn't stand those those damn commies, so he had to he had to kind of come up with a reason. Robin Hood wasn't trying to redistribute wealth; he just really hated Prince John, and so Eleanor of Aquitaine is kind of their way of saying like, nah, he was just loyal to the true king and the the true you know queen mother, not not by any means vaguely communist. That would be ridiculous. But yeah, of course, when we're talking about Walt Disney and we're talking about the 1950s, communism is going to come up fairly often. It folds in here in a way that I wasn't thinking about and didn't really expect. And I think that's just because growing up later in time where communism was not as big of a deal, I never really associated the idea of Robin Hood with the, with like, communism politically like redistribution of wealth obviously there's a long way to go between robin hood and actual like wealth redistribution like i mean i'm just thinking of like the people that he's helping like are destitute and he's taking from people who like it's like a rounding error it feels like <laughs> like he's not you know he's not evening the playing field he, he's helping making sure people survive but it's really you know, it, it, it depends on how you cast what those taxes are for, because obviously, if you're Walt Disney, 
you really don't like taxes because you have to pay a lot of them because you have a very large income, especially compared to much of your workforce. And so in in the mind of a Walt Disney, the tax man is, is the real enemy. And so taxes pay for socialist programs and are a form of wealth redistribution. So casting the tax collector as the the evil like emphasizing that aspect of what's wrong with what's going on in England at this time also sort of helps to align Robin Hood with freedom and small government <laughs> like you know that you can you can sort of see how they're they're casting it as opposed to you know more of if you we were making a progressive Robin Hood today it would be very much along the anti anti authoritarian socialism you know, like very left wing. Well, he'd be building guillotines. Like, let's just say it, you know, <laughs> they hadn't been invented yet, I don't think, but he'd figure it out. Yeah, I will say I was, you know, I was watching it and there is something so satisfying in them essentially being like, oh, Prince John and the sheriff, they're, they're, paying their fair share and then just being like we found his money let's let's get it all thrown out there like it's a great moment it's great you know in the story it feels great for those of us who are like er rich people grr but but it's being used to pay other rich people for the freedom of of a rich person so it's not it's not like you know they were taking all the money and going like huzzah to the people <laughs> it was being used to pay a bribe. I, I will say, as I was watching, I was fact-checking various things, because the, the fact that, you know, Richard the Lionhearted was essentially held for ransom, that's all true. Mm -hmm. My favorite part of it, in, in the movie, they basically say, like, Eleanor is like, oh, of course, we must, you know, give money to, to free him. And they're like, uh, what about John? She's like, oh, I'm sure he's doing what he can. I in reality, apparently, he sent his money in to convince them not to let him go, <laughs> which I, I love. I mean, it's, it's a great move, but it's also just, I see it as such a, like, petty sibling move to be like, nah, keep him. I, we don't want him back. You can, you can keep, I will pay you to keep him which is just very similar to me to like that story where people like kidnap a child and they're like, haha, we have your kid pay us a ransom. And they're like, if, if he stays with you long enough, like you'll be begging us to take him back. Just like, anyway, I'm going off topic. I, I was just say it actually blows my mind that George V and Queen Mary were like, yeah, we're going to name one of our kids, John. He'll be Prince John. No one will have any any negative associations with that whatsoever. I, I don't know. I, as someone who also loves this time period, even though England wasn't a area that I I studied extensively, I I just really enjoy the nods to the history and the and the. I think this movie actually balances pretty well the idea of what I'm going to say, quote unquote, authenticity. Uh, you know, they're shooting on locations that are at least somewhat close to the where the actual events would have taken place like you said the production design is actually pretty good here but it still has the the spirit of like telling a good story like but just 
it, I feel like the it's more about the setting and pro, like the overall production design with the authenticity, and then they're doing they're taking license with the story a little bit to to make it happen. But I'm also just just very glad that Eleanor of Aquitaine is in this movie. She is just one of my favorite historical figures. And so just like, even like a name drop, I was like, ooh, Eleanor of Aquitaine. And your history corner for this episode is that she is the only woman to ever have been both Queen of France and Queen of England. Although there were some close, some close calls mm-hmm. at other points in history that I kind of love. But uh, yes, she is... She is one of those wonderful figures that we we never hear. We never hear enough about. I guess, you know, if you've been following along with this podcast, what I'm going to say is that, like, Eleanor of Aquitaine is to English history as Mary Blair is to this podcast. (laughs) I was just... This is not super relevant, again, because apparently I'm just, like, on tangent mode today. If they were... If Disney, in, in their infinite wonder and and imagination decided to remake this movie i desperately want eleanor of aquitaine to just be olena tyrell from game of thrones because that's that's the vibe i got that she should have had in this whereas she like got near to that point and then was just like oh no i'm sure the men will figure it out so so yes i i Anyway. <laughs> no, and I mean, you know, I I think it's fairly clear that our beloved Lady Lady Tyrell was obviously like somewhat inspired by Eleanor Rockwatane. Like that has always been always been clear to me from the books. You guys didn't think you were gonna get this much medieval history on the show, did you? Uh, <laughs> or oh, references to Game of Thrones. But you picked the wrong show. Uh, <laughs> I was also just kind of thinking about in general, like why like you know, Robin Hood is one of those characters, stories that has been made so many, so many times over the course of, of the years, like almost too many to count. And, you know, it, it makes sense in this era, I think, because, you know, the 1938 one is 14 years ago when when this comes out. And like, you know, you couldn't go and like rent a tape of it or stream it or whatever. Like, if you missed it, if, you know, unless they re- did a re-release, you know, you could only watch it in the theater. You know, TV is just be- starting to become popular. And if you wanted to see anything in color, you still had to go to the movie theater. And so, you know, the fact that there is a, not just the 1938 Errol Flynn version, but there is a 1946 Robin Hood, a 1948 Robin Hood, a 1950 Robin Hood, a 1951 Robin Hood, this movie a 1954 Robin Hood, and then 60, 62, 67, 71, 73. Like, every couple years, we get a a Robin Hood. And occasionally we get, you know, I would say great ones, like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which I would say is a comedy classic at at this point. And I, I like a lot of Mel Brooks movies, but I do think that is actually one of the best. Also has a surprising degree of historical accuracy, I feel like, given that it's a parody. But it, this is one of those, like, evergreen kind of stories. And even though, you know, I don't think there's been a, since Prince of Thieves has really been, like, a real big, uh, not Prince of Thieves. Prince of Thieves is the uh, is the Kevin Costner one. The Men in Tights. That's what I meant. They came out very close together. But, you know, I don't think we've had a, like, 
new Robin Hood enter the like pantheon of Robin of you know canonical Robin Hoods, which I would argue are like Errol Flynn, the Fox, and Carrie Hughes. I'm gonna fight you as as I always do. That Once Upon a Time gave us a very iconic Robin Hood, just because he was a main character for so long. But if you don't watch Once Upon a Time, I'll grant you that not that many people are gonna know that there's been a fairly recent version. But yes, I I also did not I also did not know somehow that he was a character on that show. I mean, it makes sense now that I think about it. But I just you know, it's. Even with of the, of course, he's the love interest for the evil queen from Snow White. How could you not imagine that that was going to happen? That is that that is wild and actually pretty great. <laughs> he has a, a child with the Wicked Witch of the West that they name Robin, who becomes an archer. It's it's a whole thing. I I love that I'm getting just little bits of Once Upon a Time lore. That's like one of the other secret. Like this is actually secretly a Once Upon a Time podcast. Eventually. <laughs> We're explaining yeah, sorry, where, everyone. where all the references come from. But I think this is just one of the stories that has these iconic moments, like the arrow splitting the other arrow and, you know, him meeting little John and fighting on the log and, you know, rescuing Maid Marian and bringing her back to Sherwood Forest. Like there are these like beats that are a part of all of these movies. And I think that the character just continues to resonate, you know, and it is in some ways a very early version of a superhero story, not just because of DC Comics Green Arrow, who, you know, is a is a rich guy who dresses like Robin Hood and punches rich criminals instead of poor ones like Batman. <laughs> or at least that's the, at least the comics version, the Arrow CW show version, like it's not not there, but it's not really the main, the main focus of it. Yeah, well, the the Arrow CW show is just Batman pretending to be Oliver Queen, so that's that's its own thing. Yeah, and you know, I mean, look, if if Arrow had been as progressive with that with Oliver Queen as the, the comics Oliver Queen is, then Steve Amell would be an amazing actor, given what I believe about his political <laughs> opinions. <laughs> yeah, we are both on tangent mode today, but you know, I I so think sorry. again, this is just one of those. This is one of those characters that has a place in the overall like Anglo-American folklore. And so again, like thinking of we're doing Alice in Wonderland, we're doing Peter Pan, Cinderella even, like these are all like this, I feel like this is where the idea of what Disney is, like for my, at least from my point of view, really starts to coalesce because you have the building blocks earlier, like you have Snow White, you have Pinocchio, but then like things like Fantasia and a lot of the package films that are like shorts, Saludos Amigos and the Three Caballeros, where it's very focused on on Donald and, and cartoon characters. And I do love all that stuff. But I think this this era specifically is what sort of like canonizes the like storybook Disney as like the main kind of thing that Disney, that like the whole company is putting forward. Yeah, I definitely think that that's, I mean, if if we've been calling it a growing trend, it's very much a kind of cemented idea by now. I really actually do enjoy this movie, but, you know, you were talking about it's such an iconic figure. There were so many different versions. It's such a weird choice for me for Walt Disney to make. So for anybody who's watched the movie, it's actually, it's pretty good. It's on Disney+. Plus. I, I actually do recommend this one. It's one of the few that... I will, like, 
unreservedly kind of give a recommendation to. But you watch it and you go, okay, cool. So steal from the rich, give to the poor. We won't name names. Government resistance. All the while, Walt is literally naming names of people in Hollywood that he believes are communists, specifically his entertainment rivals. Like, Walt, Walt is not Robin Hood. Like, we can say that Walt was Peter Pan. Walt is not Robin Hood. Walt is not anybody except, frankly, probably Prince John. Maybe the Sheriff of Nottingham, but I, I questionable. We'll, we'll get into all of the, the nitty gritty of it, but it's, it's a really interesting movie because it's actually enjoyable, but it makes no sense to me that Walt Disney made this movie. And I think this is not one, at least, where I saw Disney being like, oh, like, you know, it's a story I love from the time I was a boy or something like that, where you're like, oh, okay, like, I can see how he may not have, like, really thought through the message of the story. But I also think that in a lot of ways, Disney is a, is, was a, a really shrewd person and actually, like, understood as much as he gambled and lost um, a bunch of times on stuff he thought would be more popular. You know, I do think that there is something about him that where he is able to sort of tap into what, you know, how, how's this going to play in Marceline, Missouri? And so whether conscious or not, and, you know, I, I do think it is easy for someone like Walt Disney to sort of compartmentalize the politics of be like, well, that, you know, that was a circumstance where Robin Hood was being a patriot and, and blah, blah, blah. Like, if he even made the comparison, it might just be like, well, that was like the time and the place and Robin Hood was fighting for freedom. Like, you know, I, I think I think there's definitely some of that in there. But it is... I was surprised by this movie. And the, I actually watched it twice for this. And the first time I was like, oh, this is just not as like fun and like romantic not just in the sense of the relationship between robin and marion but like you know that sort of fantastical like romantic like idealized version of robin hood and the first time i watched it was very much you know just automatically comparing it to the errol flynn version and i think this time i watched it, i was better able to appreciate it as its own version of of robin hood and really sort of enjoy the performances and the fun aspects of it, you know, like the whole play fight with the Miller, you know, and, and Marion's introduction, you know, or reintroduction to Robin Hood in that scene, I think it's just like really like fun and cute and charming and, and playful in a way that I don't think we've really seen, you know, I mean, there's only the second one, but like, it, that's not something that would feel right in Treasure Island. I actually think gender dynamics are done pretty well in this movie. I mean, yes, it is a story about what the men folk are doing. And there's definitely some moments where they're like, we are men, manly men. But like, Eleanor is important. Mm -hmm. And Marion is important. And they have personalities. And it's actually, it's, it's quite well done. Which is a huge step forward from having literally no female characters on screen at all. Because I, you know, as, as someone who has done a little bit of archery and, and my friend who is watching it with me has also done archery, like, Marion's original introduction is so stupid. Like, you, you don't get that close to where somebody is shooting an arrow 
the best, you know, the best archer can still miss and you are in a dangerous spot there. Especially if he's trying to predict, you know, the, the thing wiggling. I, I feel like Marion had a real personality that, like, the women, especially in... Well, honestly, any of the women up till this point. I was I was going to say since the 50s, but I don't know that we've really had any female characters that I've really felt had a life and a personality of their own. I don't know. Let me look through the list, but I, I think this might actually be one of the most progressive portrayals of a woman. I would count Alice for sure. Yeah, I don't not necessarily for for her role in the story, but like I do think she has like a full on personality and like she has a point of view on things and I I don't know why I'm I'm so opposed to that, but I just feel like Alice you know, there are there are characters that exist for the reader to be to be able to put themselves in their shoes. And I feel like that's who Alice is. I don't feel like she has a strong personality to me so much as she doesn't like the way things are supposed to be, which very few children do. And we're just supposed to kind of be able to put ourselves in her shoes. That's fair. That's fair. I, 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 I see what feel you mean. Feel free to disagree. Mm-hmm. But I, I definitely do think that the way that the women are characterized in this movie is leaps and bounds beyond most of the Disney movies thus far, at least. And I definitely, you know, that's not me trying to say this movie isn't, isn't doing that at all because I I think it's, it's actually doing it really well. And that, you know, that early scene before we see Marion and Robin together, you know, his, his father's like trying to figure out like, like where they are and everything. And the like, older older woman is like well you know like if one is there the other's going to be there and they're both going to be in trouble like you know and, and putting them on equal footing from the first time they're referenced and then carrying that through that first scene where he's teasing her and then she teases him right back you know again that scene with the miller that i referenced where she is like all of a sudden clobbering him <laughs> with <laughs> with something and you know she's not doing well at passing for a boy but you know well, that cert- was walt's fault <laughs> But, but again, like the play, like she has a play, there's a playfulness to her as well as, you know, it also shows her as she's not a silly character either. Like she's understanding the political situation that's going on very much like wants to play an active role in that get within the bounds of, you know, being a woman in this society. I don't know. There are so many interesting things about Marion and just on the, she, she's not good at playing a boy that, that is one of the wonderful Walt stories we have. <laughs> Walt had some really interesting perspectives on Marion that we'll we'll talk about a little bit more when we get into the cast. But apparently Walt came to set and saw a couple of things and went, no, nope, she looks too much like a boy. That's not the point. Give her a new costume. I, no, she needs to look like a woman. Uh, which is funny because that's explicitly what she's trying not to do. But I, I just... I think she's an interesting character and I think that she and Robin have growth. Like we see them fighting for each other. We see them supporting each other. And it's one of those rare cases, especially in the modern day where friends to lovers makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. 
Because I, I think after the era of, like, Cory and Topanga, we've, we of society have much preferred enemies to lovers because there's that, like, automatic passion. And I feel like this movie is one of the kind of rare examples where friends to lovers works really well, that these people knew each other all their lives, they tease each other, they're comfortable together, they're going to be obnoxious to each other, and I just... I don't know. It, it just felt very human to me. And I, I really appreciate that. I completely agree. I really like the way that their relationship is shown. Uh, I really like, again, just that Marion as a character is treated with respect, I think is, is a really, uh, just a really good sign overall. So this was filmed in Buckinghamshire, England in the summer of 1951. Uh, originally, there were some news items out at the time that Disney intended to feature Bobby Driscoll in this movie, probably as one of the, I was going to say one of the Lost Boys, but that's next week, one of the, <laughs> <laughs> one of the Merry Men, a, a younger Merry Man, uh, I guess. But, you know, the whole labor dispute around everything that we talked about in the Treasure Island episode meant that didn't seem like an actual feasible idea. Robert Newton, who played Long John Silver, was considered for Friar Tuck. So they weren't quite building up the company players the way that they had been with the hybrid movies we talked about. But there at least was thought to doing that. And there's definitely people here that will be further involved in other Disney productions from this point. Walt arrives uh, in July of 1951, skipping out on the Alice in Wonderland premiere and made several suggestions. I'm going to use suggestions in quotes about, you know, how they should go about making the movie, what directors, what actors, uh, what films they should take from as inspiration. The whole production was very much a British production with only uh, Purse Pierce, the producer, Lawrence Watkin, the writer, and Fred Leahy, the production manager, being Americans, and the rest of the cast being, or the rest of the crew, at least, uh, being, being local to England. Similar to Treasure Island, Pierce basically storyboarded the entire movie just like they would do for the animated films and so like walt reviewed the storyboards along with the script you know walt signs off on it he tells pierce that the this movie's success and how quickly it was filmed was vital to the studio and also his tenure with the company so pierce was on a mission to get this you know on time under budget making sure that this movie actually got made that it would be profitable profitable for the studio carmen dylan and guy green worked on those aforementioned storyboards and you know that whole process was a way of disney keeping creative control over the movie which sometimes seemed to get on on the nerves of director ken anakin who would go on to direct a few more movies uh, for the studio he was loaned out from j arthur rank films uh, where he was under contract but he's he said quote quite often i had to bite my tongue or be prepared to quit when it came with dealing with walt and his ideas you know, and I think that relationship of what makes a Disney movie, Walt certainly in his mind still at this point is like, well, Walt Disney makes a Disney movie and, you know, had to at least be involved in some aspect of uh, production. And here it was largely like making su suggestions, like I said, quote unquote suggestions and, and sort of controlling the overall production. So one of the things that he specifically kind of decided to control was part of the cast. There's a few different elements of this, uh, kind of the three main players that we talk about with the cast, especially with, you know, Disney as a whole, 
is that we had Richard Todd as Robin Hood, Peter Finch as the Sheriff of Nottingham, and then Joan Rice as Maid Marian, which became complicated. So Ken Anakin basically said that he, he did not like that Joan Rice was cast. He thought that she could not act at all. But apparently Walt came into town, found her, which is interesting. Uh, according to Richard Todd, she was a waitress in London. She had never acted. And then Walt just kind of found her and was like, you are Maid Marian, which I, I kind of find hilarious. And so it kind of became this, this convoluted thing where Walt was like, if I can keep control over one thing, it will be Maid Marian. And so there was kind of this alliance of sorts where Ken Anakin and Richard Todd were really kind of striving for this high quality British production. And Walt just really, really thought that Joan Rice was stunning and talented. And it becomes this kind of fight over and over. Richard Todd was actually pretty short. I don't have his exact dimensions, but he was shorter than Joan Rice, which became a bit of a problem with traditional Hollywood optics because they basically had to build planks or create ways to hide like apple boxes or crates so that, of course, Robin Hood is, is the tall one in the relationship. So it becomes this really kind of interesting dynamic. Richard Todd said, she wasn't an actress, poor little girl. I mean, goodness knows why Walt and the others chose her. She had never acted. She was a pretty little thing. She was a nice little thing. She tried her best. She did her best. It wasn't there. Which, ouch. I don't know. I, do, I don't think that she does a, a terribly bad job. But of course, uh, especially in England, the... How am I going to put this? The, the film and television industry has always been very incestuous in, in British entertainment. So outsiders, especially those who have never acted, were going to be a bit complicated. And even today, you'll see that if there's a major British actor, one of their parents was probably also a major British actor. I'm not surprised that Walt Disney, of all people either did not know this or just did not care because I'm sure that she was probably also, she probably also saved them a, a bit of money. Oh, I'm sure. Being a, a complete unknown versus, you know, being a, you know, from a pedigree of, of, of actors. So watching it, I think she actually does a pretty good job. Like, you know, I've certainly seen better performances, but I've certainly seen worse ones. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I find her pretty believable overall as Marion. And, you know, I actually really think that she, she and Richard Todd have a decent amount of chemistry together. I don't know. When, when you're doing the research into this, what you're going to find is basically everyone who's ever written about it, who was affiliated with the production is like, yeah, that was interesting. We had some good backgrounds and, you know, the costume work was kind of nice, but like, why was she cast? And, and I don't... <laughs> I think that's unfair, and I, I really do think it has a lot to do with that very, as you said, pedigree kind of status in the British uh, entertainment market. 
you know, she she does an admirable job. She's perfectly fine. And I really like the fact that this focuses so much on the Robin Marion relationship and like really foregrounds the romantic side of the story in a way that can be lacking. I feel like especially in modern tellings where we're much more like, well, if we're making a big blockbuster movie, like the focus has to be on on action and things that look cool. And not so much like kissing because that's gross or something. So like, I, you know, the fact that like this, this, you know, G-rated Disney movie from 1952 has probably more kissing in it than your average Marvel movie, I think is, is somewhat admirable. I definitely think that there's an element and, and we're going to talk in, in a few weeks about a movie where they, they went too far. But I think that this is a period where we see Walt really kind of stretching and going, does this work? Does this work? How do we, how much of this can we include? In the upcoming uh, Sword in the Rose, there's going to be a lot of discussion of it wasn't historical enough or it was too romantic. So we see kind of these same themes popping up as they try and play with it over and over again. One of the other aspects of this movie that I think is done really well is the overall look of it, the like technical uh, shooting. So the shooting in Technicolor was still pretty, it, it just took a lot of work to shoot in the three strip system. You can't move the camera a lot. You know, when you want to reload it, it's very heavy because you're putting three strips of film in there. And it took, you know, it takes at least 11 minutes just to reload the camera. And then so after every shot, you have to adjust. You know, you have to be very economical when you're shooting because if you are something that takes a long time to put new film into, requires a lot of maintenance, like the crew is constantly working with the cameras. You know, if it takes 11 minutes to reload, every take is at least 11 minutes between when you can shoot, basically. So you're you're using up a lot of money directly on the expensive film setup, but you're also costing a lot of time. And so with this production and even Walt of all people being like, look, we really got to make this thing come in on budget and we wanted to make its money back and we want to do it quickly. All of this stuff really starts to add up. And so I think, you know, in the end, it, it's worth it because the overall look of the movie, you can tell they are shooting like on location. And I, I just feel like that adds so much to, you know, especially to differentiate it from the Errol Flynn version, which has incredible sets. But they are sets, you know, and you can really tell the difference. So, like, those are real trees that they're acting around. This comes back to, again, that this is a very British period of Disney. And particularly the live action movies were very British in how they were done. So whereas, you know, so many things in American film are done on a, on a soundstage. Going into a weird tangent again, if you look at the Halloween franchise, there's like seven different houses that they use for the Myers house because they would use a real house and then the next three movies would be a soundstage that that so much of traditional American film is kind of created instead of being in these real settings. And I think that particularly for this film, you know, we saw that the people of Nottingham really liked the idea that Walt was interested in what history said and interested in these authentic locations. Oddly enough, Princess Elizabeth, later to be 
Queen Elizabeth II, was also really interested in this movie. So it, you know, it really captured kind of the, the minds of the British people to see an American company doing a British story the British way instead of, you know, intensely Americanized like some of their other works at this time. To the extent that Princess Elizabeth went to the studios, she only had two people with her and she was shown around by Walt and art director Carmen Dillon going to the sets, going to the costume department, really kind of, you know, I'm sure it was more of a like, oh, look at these exciting things. But this is a movie that has the Queen of England stamp of approval on it. And that's insane. I love that the that Nottingham, like the people there are like, okay, what are we most known for? The sheriff. What do we need to do? We need to build a museum to Robin Hood and collect all of these books and just like go all in on Robin Hood. So eventually people will stop associating Nottingham with the sheriff and associate Robin Hood with Nottingham. Like this whole thing feels like a very long-term PR campaign by Nottingham to like <laughs> get back in everyone's good graces. I think that it's it's just fascinating because it is history and legend and stories. So instead of being like a character made by a British person, it's highly connected to various kind of British identities. And yeah, I think that there are some kind of critical PR campaigns going on here for Nottingham, for England as a whole. You know, it, it certainly doesn't hurt that it's a very pro-monarchy movie or pro-correct monarchy movie, at least. It's very weird how not Walt Disney this movie is and how... British people telling British stories in Britain, it is instead. No, I, I think that's a great point because, you know, Disney as as a as a person, as a brand, is not necessarily associated with authenticity. You know, there's so many people who are like, well, Disney took these, you know, really dark and disturbing fairy tales and cleaned them up and, and made them more suitable for children and commoditized them and, and everything. And I think it's it's interesting that this is sort of the reverse of that in a lot of ways because it really is just like, well, we have this money sitting over here. Like, let's just like, again, this is this may be an odd tangent, but like one of the things I really love about Disney's approach to theme parks is that sense of like it's a feeling. Authenticity is a feeling. Like authenticity is a vibe, and like there are details that make those things feel that way, and like that's what's like. If you're creating an entertainment experience, that's the important part. So one of my favorite things is in Epcot, where they have all of the different countries that you can visit. They bring in people from, you know, Morocco to work in the Morocco area of Epcot. You know, they'll bring people over from France and England and everywhere. So you you go there and it, and it just adds that extra little layer of, you know, for similitude, like... Just, you know, and then going to Universal and the Harry Potter parks and you're like, you know, like you're, you're buying fish and chips at Disney. There's at least a 50-50 chance that the person giving you the fish and chips is going to have a British accent 
or at least the person taking your order <laughs> is going to have a British accent. And like you go to the Harry Potter parts of Universal and it's just like, you know, people who live in Florida work there. <laughs> and it 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 breaks the illusion, you know, like they can they could say that you're spending, you know, fifty galleons all 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 day long, but like it's an American accent. You know, there's no you can you can feel it like you're it, it's not enough for your brain to just be like oh, all right like i'm in this fantasy and i'm just going to accept that this is you know like that i'm i'm purchasing a thing with my credit card in you know hogsmeade or whatever but like it's that sort of attention to detail that i think does show up here and there but it really is that that key sense of like always trying to capture that feeling and i think that's one thing that as a storyteller whether it be in animation or live action or, you know, television or theme parks, I think Walt understood how to make things feel a certain way, just on a very like intuitive level. And I think to me, that's the connection. And like, you know, that him wanting to make it feel authentic is more important than it actually being authentic. Yeah. And that's, to be fair, that's a pretty common thing. A lot of people more people, at least now, are aware of uh, a phenomenon called the Tiffany problem. Have you heard this, Ryan? Uh, I don't think so. So the Tiffany problem is... Oh, yes. I Sorry, I just remembered. I, I have watched the CPG Grey video on the Tiffany problem. Okay. Well, for, for those of our listeners who don't know, basically, <laughs> it's a problem specifically with historical fiction and fantasy because fantasy is so hooked on, like, medieval Renaissance Europe that basically what we believe is authentic and historical is more important than what actually is. And so the specific reason that it's called the Tiffany problem is that Tiffany is actually a real medieval name. But if you were watching like a history of English monarchs and they had lady-in-waiting Tiffany, you'd think (laughs) what kind of Americanized weird situation is this despite the fact that it's actually just a a basically variant on a very traditional i believe french name and and i think that's that's a very interesting point to bring up with this movie that walt wanted to go more historical and so there are aspects of this that are more historical than other versions of robin hood from the time But he also knew where the line was, and he kept to absurdities when needed. I I think he had, in in D&D, we call it the rule of cool. Walt definitely knew how to follow the rule of cool, but he also knew how to Mm -hmm. follow the rule of, like, tone. That, That he could make it sound authentic, even if it wasn't. And so he wanted it to be historical, but he could... He, he could let things things break the history if it was for a good enough like narrative reason. The story ultimately is the reason you're you're watching it. And so making sure the story feels authentic is is definitely part of that. But the story being satisfying is the bigger concern. everything has to serve that. So it really makes sense. And again, I think I do think that's one of the reasons. Like, I, I do think that is one of Walt's biggest strengths: telling stories and understanding how to tell stories in a way that really will resonate with people. 
And so the world premiere of this Robin Hood is uh, happens in London on March 13th, 1952. Anakin called it, quote, a happy, triumphant evening. My only private reservation was that despite my efforts to shake off the straight jacket of the continuity sketches, some of the acting seemed stilted and stagey. I swear that this must never happen on my second Disney movie. By continuity sketches, I think he probably means the storyboards that like, you know, he was kind of locked in and using that the uh, three strip Technicolor camera certainly didn't made that even harder to deviate because again, the the cost of trying to experiment with different setups and and change the framing and everything, you know, would have really added added up very quickly uh, on this. And so I think that's a fair assessment overall. But but like I said, I, I, I like this movie. I think it ended up being pretty popular. It was one of the most popular one. It was one of the most popular movies in England in that year. The New York opening was on June 26, 1952. You know, they had advertised it with the riddle of Robin Hood as a promotional short uh, that ran with other movies. There is, again, as you know, anytime you go back to like pre-1970, 1960, something like that, box office numbers get really sketchy. You know, according to different sources, it grossed anywhere from three to four and a half million dollars at the American box office, which was, you know, the budget was about one point three million dollars. And so, like, it, you know, either way, it was definitely successful and popular at the box office, you know, with audiences wanting to go see this movie. Yeah. And one of the things that, you know, is even better for Disney is if the lowest possible gross that we see is 3 million it was budgeted at 1.3 so we do see kind of this it it wasn't huge necessarily but it was a pretty substantial profit there which is a good thing for purse pierce because he was basically threatened that this movie would decide his fate it it becomes this kind of interesting setting because they've done two british movies at this point there's been a bit of a war between the British side and the Disney of it all. Largely speaking, it has worked. I think it was a story from Treasure Island, uh, but I know it was from these British films. There were talks of if the director would film things that weren't on the storyboards, Walt would call them and just be like, what are you doing? And they're like, oh, I, I wanted to get the emotion <laughs> of like this moment. And Walt's just like, but that angle wasn't on the storyboard. They're like, well, the the actors just did a really good thing. And they're like, but it, it, it wasn't on the storyboard. So, so you do have that tug of war that I think contributes to some of the stiltedness. Maybe, maybe Anakin should have just been like, but, but Joan Rice said that we should do it this way. And I know you love her, Walt. <laughs> but this tug of war seemed to be working. The New York Times called it, quote, an expert rendition of an ancient legend that is as pretty as its technicolor hues and as lively as a sturdy Western. That's, you know, that's pretty impressive. Radio Times Mm -hmm. wrote, this may not hold a candle to the Errol Flynn version, which is going to be the prevailing view, but the authentic English locations and fine technicolor, but... The authentic English locations and fine Technicolor photography make it excellent family entertainment. Richard Todd enjoys himself as the famous outlaw 
buddies up against strong competition from Peter Finch as the wicked Sheriff of Nottingham and the delightful Hubert Gregg cast against type as the evil King John. So, I mean, the, the response to this was still overwhelmingly positive, even if we do see kind of that, that tug of war between the British authenticity and the Disney authenticity vibes, if, if we want to put it that way. I think by its own measure, the film was definitely successful in what it was aiming to do. And I don't, I don't think personally, I would be very surprised if someone, if someone like preferred this version to the Errol Flynn version. But again, in a time period, in an era where you can't watch this one every time, you know, or you can't watch the Errol Flynn version anytime you want at, in your house. I think this is a very enjoyable version of Robin Hood. And I think it's, it's distinct enough where it's not just, you know, redoing that movie. It is, it does have its own identity within the larger sort of Robin Hood mythos. Yeah, I was actually, I was disappointed when I was doing the research because I watched this movie and I, I had done most of my research first, as I always do. And I watched it and I went, no, this is, this is a good movie. So I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, let me look up like lists of the best Robin Hood movies and things like that. And this is on the bottom of so many lists. And I hate it because I feel like it's a really good version. But there are just, you know, as you were saying at the beginning, so many versions that, of course, there's going to be some that outshine it. But I think especially given the context of the time, if you couldn't watch the best of all time, nobody's going to complain at this version. I don't think there's anything... I... <laughs> I don't look for bad things in these movies, but I have found many bad things in these movies. <laughs> and literally, the note that I wrote down at the end, and granted, I, I could be wrong, but my note was, I don't find anything offensive. It's historically accurate for the most part. I like the gender dynamics. This is a solid film. And that's that's hard for me to do. If you've been listening and hearing you know, me complain about everything there is to complain about with Disney movies. I've seen a, a decent, I've seen enough Robin Hood movies to make like a top five list probably. And, you know, this would not be at the bottom for me. It would be at least in the middle, but it would be behind movies, you know, like the animated version, Daryl Flynn version, Men in Tights. But it's, it's in the mix. And I think, you know, it's one that if I had seen this as a kid, I would have watched it over and over and over again. So I, I, I think there is a lot of value in this movie. And, and it was kind of a nice like surprise because I had not seen it prior to uh, watching it for the show. Again, we're seeing Disney step into merchandising here. They released a Sherwood Forest board game, which seemed to be the go-to movie tie-in toy at this point in time. Because that's, that's the thing we're going to, I think, hear more and more of. Which, you know, it makes sense. Like, Board games are mostly made of cardboard, like they're relatively cheap to produce, you know, as far as like toys go. And uh, so I think it kind of makes sense. It was also aired on the Disneyland TV show as a two part special in 1955. They also put out a, a record of four songs from the soundtrack with narration by Dallas McKinnon in 1963. Uh, so it had enough staying power to 10 years later get a record release of it that was, you know, kind of telling you the story of the movie and featuring some of the songs within it. It was released on Laserdisc in 1992, VHS in 94. 
uh, and a Disney Movie Club uh, exclusive DVD was released in 2006. It's not on Blu-ray as of this recording yet, but it is on Disney Plus, which is where we both watched it. And I, I think it looks really good. Like it, it looked like it was fully high definition. Like the picture quality was was very high. You know, and that befits the reputation because it was also voted one of the best Technicolor movies ever made in Britain. And so, you know, I like that both this and the Errol Flynn version of Robin Hood are are known as like bright and colorful movies. And now we're getting like just more and more like, let's do a grim, like gray Robin Hood. Like he's so, you know, badass. He doesn't even wear green anymore. You know, I... <laughs> I love The Dark Knight. Everyone loves The Dark Knight. But I hate what it did to the movie industry and specifically the comic book or like action hero movie industry because it's everybody's got to be dark and gritty because that's what real life is. And it, you know, there's something fun about seeing playful exchanges and all of that. I will say, and I'm going to ask you in a minute, Ryan, because we're actually going much shorter than normal on this episode. I'm, I'm going to ask you in a minute what your favorite scene is. I, I have two, and it all goes back to something that I said in Treasure Island, which is this is a hilarious time to be making violent movies because they can't. They can't make them <laughs> suitably violent. I will say the moment where Robin Hood's father is killed is, is actually very heart-wrenching. But it's then followed up by the funniest moment in the entire movie where Robin shoots the assassin who is standing on a tree and he just like swings back off of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I think is is probably the funniest scene I've seen from Disney thus far in our watch. I'm aware it wasn't supposed to be, but I, I find that genuinely hilarious. Which is funny because I think this film also has one of the most brutal death scenes although it wasn't shown because they more or less imply I, I mean much more that the sheriff of Nottingham gets a really brutal end I mean he's as far as I read it at least he basically got either beheaded or his throat crushed by the drawbridge at the castle which is, you know, very similar to, like, the scene in Scream where Tatum is killed by a garage door. So if it's, mm-hmm. if it's reminiscent of a horror movie, it's, it's kind of surprising that I can go, like, yeah, this was really brutal. But also, this guy dying was hilarious. Yeah, very different uh, forms of uh, Final Destination. <laughs> yeah, I, this movie is definitely less violent than Treasure Island, which I found... Just the amount, again, like the violence there was, as we talked about, like pretty stagey and over the top, but there was more of it than I was, than I remembered. Whereas it's not that this movie isn't at all violent, but I do think that for the most part, there's a lot more like implied violence and there's a lot more, you know, even within the story, playful violence. There's definitely a playful tone to, I think all of the violence except the death of the father and the death of the sheriff, which, to be fair, it's not shown. He could be alive. But by the way that it was being shown when Robin was trying to escape the, the you know, castle door drawbridge combo, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's dead. 
But other than those two, all of the violence is very much like, ha ha, let's, you know, make trouble for the rich, which is admittedly very satisfying to watch. <laughs> and and for your earlier question, I actually think my favorite scene in the movie is that whole sequence with, with the Miller, you know, and, and Marion and Robin Hood's reunification. Like, I, I just really like, it's very fun and playful and... I think, you know, has a bunch of like small, great, like character moments in it. And, and even though her costuming is very feminine, the revelation that it is not a boy, it's made Marion, I think is is actually played well by Robert Todd. <laughs> you know, he, he is he's doing his best to, to sell that moment. And, and it almost like, again, because they establish the scene between the two of them in the tree, like it almost feels like he's teasing her. And so like it, it works in a slightly different way than maybe Walt intended. <laughs> I think that teasing is such a big thing in this movie because other than the sheriff, like generally speaking, Robin and, and his gang are not trying to kill all of the other people. They're trying to take their money and they're trying to make fools of them, which we especially see when he, you know, puts the sheriff back on his horse backwards and, and all of that. But I think that that idea goes forward in such a good way because Prince John has no humor. Like, he, he's just doing his thing. But when Richard the Lionheart comes back, he decides to play a prank. That's like his first thing. He's like, I know what I'm going to do. And that's that's probably my second favorite scene, just that that end scene where he's like, Oh, okay. I I honor you. I appreciate you. I'm I'm gonna name you. I'm forgetting. I it was the Duke of something. I think he's like I'm I'm gonna give Robin this title. Oh uh, yeah, it's like the Duke of uh, okay. Loxley. And then you know, why don't we call out Marion or Earl or something like that? And yeah. she comes out and she's like, Oh, you're back. It's wonderful. Everything's happy. And he's like, Yes. And we've decided that you're gonna get married. And she's like, I, I'm what? Like, I'm I'm chilling in a cave with my boyfriend. What are you talking about? And he's like, no, my my mother is very insistent, and as king, I am likewise insistent. Uh, you you must you must marry uh the duke. She's just like, we 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 just went through this whole thing. How? In what world do you think this is gonna happen? And I just I love it. I feel like that scene. Is, is great in showing kind of that, that continuity of, like, good guys tease people. It, it kind of feels like a scene that should have come from, like, Hercules, almost. Like, I could see that kind of vibe with, like, Megara and Hercules. Like, instead of the gods saying, like, oh, we, we will make Hercules a god, they're like, oh, well, we will, uh, we will let... Megara, uh, marry, you know, one of the gods. It's like, I, I literally just died for Herc. Like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if you were watching properly, but like, something's going on here. And they're like, he, he, she doesn't know that he's a god. Like that, that's the environment I would expect that scene, not in this movie, but it's, it is one of my favorites. 
I mean, it's it's such a great dad joke, uh, honestly. Like, it's just very much what a dad would do in that situation. And it, it plays 100% authentically. And if you like this, I will not spoil it, but you are really going to like the end of the animated Robin Hood. Keep that in mind. Because that, because that has a joke on, I would say, at least on par with this joke. I think that one of the things I like best about gender dynamics in this movie is that, like, everyone's aware that gender dynamics are not, like, equal in this movie. I mean, Marion's like, oh, I, I can solve our problem right now. And they're like, no, you're a woman. You have to stay here because your dad said so. She's like, I can solve this problem so easily. And just the, the like, bewildered frustration of having a solution that you can't use because they're like, you're a woman. And I feel like that that frustration is very well borne out in their them being like, well, number one, you're a woman, so you, you do what you're told. And number two, I'm royalty, so you do what I say. And that feels so unfair. But it's all a joke because, of course, they're, they're just, you know, playing with her. I, 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 I really enjoy that because it, it acknowledges the historical gender inequality and modern gender inequality in, in many ways without having to be super depressing or obnoxious about it. Yeah, actually, I was planning on writing about it for an article that didn't quite come together by the deadline I had, but actually just rewatched John Carter. And that has a very similar dynamic between the the monarch and his daughter in terms of like, we know that the, this like just the way that he treats her is, is very much like the gender dynamic is so is so over the top old that it's like not even offensive because you're like oh clearly the movie is like showing that this is terrible like it it this is a very benign version of that dynamic all things considered but the movie is aware that that dynamic exists and that like it's it's actually commenting on it as much as it's like reenacting it and so I, I did find that similar parallel, like, pretty pretty interesting. But I, I also found this movie, like, has some really funny moments. One for me is, like, during the archery competition, which, like, always I feel like has room for great gags in it. But I love the, when they're, like, announcing people and they announce them and, like, everyone's cheering and then they're like, and, you know, Sir William for uh, shooting for the Sheriff of Nottingham and it cuts to the crowd and it's just dead silent. <laughs> you know, anytime you get a good, like, the crowd like cheering or like and then silent or booing or something like and and it's done with like cuts back and forth that is a joke structure that will always work on me and so every time i, I just find it really funny and i was glad to i glad to see it here and like executed like pretty well like it's you know and it cuts to john and the sheriff and he's like well my men have been collecting the new taxes so like he's like i get it like <laughs> i'm not expecting this crowd to really like be on my side which, like, at least he knows. There, there are plenty of other villains where they're like, "What? How dare you be upset with me, lions? I've just let the hyenas take over all of the territory. Why would you be upset?" So I, I do, I do really appreciate that. They, he's like, "Yeah, that that makes sense. That's fine." He's like, "I, I, I know. I have a little bit of like a PR problem right now." <laughs> 
But yeah, another thing that I really like about the Robin Marion dynamic too is that, like, especially at the beginning of the movie, they both feel like teenagers. Like, they both feel like late adolescents in that sense of like their, you know, playfulness and like relative inexperience that they have at the beginning of the movie. And I think that again helps to, to sort of sell that character growth over the course of the movie, like you were saying, Megan. I think that part of what makes that work so well is having the dad in there. Because when we are introduced to Robin, he is not Robin Hood yet. And that's something that most movies don't want to do other than like Batman and Spider-Man movies needing to kill the, you know, parents and uncle, respectively. Like, many movies just want you to jump in and the hero be the hero already. And I feel like having, yes, Robin's a great archer. His dad's better. He's a kid who doesn't know what he's doing. It does a good sense of showing that, like, he is young. He's still figuring things out. And it takes him, you know, becoming this figure and taking on the cause for him to grow up, for her to grow up, and for them to kind of become adults instead of being kind of teenagers being pushed towards adulthood yeah and I, and I think that also really works well with the sort of very common robin hood structure of like the first half of the movie is like getting the gang together like on the heist episode of rick and morty where like you know they, they go and they meet somebody and they're like you son of a bitch i'm in and they just like repeat repeat ad nauseum uh, to build the team like that is sort of the structure of Robin Hood because you, you got to do the scene where he you know he meets little John he meets Friar Tuck and Alan and Dale like all of these characters that like even if they don't play big roles in the story like even if you can't always even if they're always not name checked enough for you to remember who is who like I always remember like I can name you know a decent amount of merry men like i am i'm at least getting down to will scarlet before i start to like stumble and, and try to remember other names and so i think that was actually done really well here and you know they the archery contest which i always think of happening a little bit later happens very early in this movie because they tie it into his father's death like you know, I, I think the way that they overall structured this movie, you know, at one point Robin saves the queen, which gives her, you know, even more of a role or at least more of a presence in the story, you know, and, and he points out like, oh, like, here's the real clothes of the people that were attacking you. You know, I think it's, I think it's really good and it doesn't feel episodic in the way that some Robin Hood movies often feel. I think it actually does like have a good pace to the story as well. This is going to be one of the few like, pretty totally positive episodes we're gonna have i i really don't think that there's that many bad things in this movie i feel like the story works the acting works i like the dynamics the biggest thing for me that made me go like ah, was the whistle arrow i'm just like i you know i know that people love arrow gags like you know the flash drive arrow and stuff but like I, I don't think that would work just because I think that, you know, you wouldn't be able to aim well, which of course I immediately uh, thought of apparently not a huge TikTok guy, but I, I kind of thought he was David the Arrow Bard, who I'm seeing now only has a thousand and three followers, but like, I, I thought he was huge, who like 
is an archer and will test out, like, let's try the boxing glove. Let's try the, like, rope wrapping around the bad guy arrow. And the vast majority of the time he's like, you could do it. It's not going to be good, but you could. Like, sure, you can try this, you know, strategy, but it's not going to have enough force for it to work because you just, you know, dismantled the core physics of how a bow works. So that's, that's really my only, like, point where I was like, now wait a minute, this movie needs to, needs to think a little harder. I'm like, I don't know, I don't, I don't like that, that arrow. Even, you know, there were two biblical references in this movie. And, you know, I always bring these up as we go through the Disney movies because I think it's interesting when they started being more religious. Because there's, you know, very clear David and Goliath references. There are Judas references, both of which I think fit perfectly in the story and make sense historically and in the modern context. So, I mean, it... It doesn't feel like things are thrown in just to be thrown in. It feels like everything really does serve the story and the characterizations, except for this arrow that just makes no sense. <laughs> I did not give it a second thought at the time. I'm going to be perfectly honest. But, you know, I again, I'm a person who is very pro trick arrows. Like if, if he had pulled a boxing glove arrow, it would have been like, okay, that's a bit much. I don't know the boxing gloves were invented yet. Like, let's let's slow down. But in general, I, you know, I, like I said, it just, it just didn't phase me. But no, overall, I think this is a really fun movie. And like I said, if I had watched it as a kid, it would have become a favorite of mine for sure. You know, especially because like I said, I have not seen the uh, Flynn version until only a couple years ago. Uh, the only other thing I wanted to make sure to mention uh, is that it was released with a nature short, part of the True Life Adventure series called Waterbirds, uh, and also the cartoon short, uh, The Little House, which we talked about on our 50s shorts bonus episode that sort of led into this season. So just as another way, if you haven't listened to that episode, all of those shorts are available on YouTube, the exception of one, which is on Daily Motion. But if you Google the name of the shorts, you will easily, easily find them because that's what I did. So I just wanted to just replug that episode as just a reminder that when you would see a Disney film, you would probably get at least one or two Disney shorts with it. And that's, you know, something that they've periodically done but i would like to see them keep doing although i would also like to see them stop making movies that are over two hours based on theme park rides 90 minutes like this movie is 87 minutes it had everything it needed to have we we need to go back to some shorter movies like i i have no problem with the occasional long movie but there's a reason i haven't watched titanic and it's because i already know the ending and i don't want to watch for three hours getting there and i i feel like Disney movies are are sadly going down that same track a lot more. I did I did want to say before we close that I was going to say that the reason that the whistle arrow bugs me is because they did so much good historical research, but this makes no sense. But then I googled, which is a wonderful resource, and realized that I did not do enough research because apparently this is a legit thing that many people do. Okay. So I, I just wanted to put out okay. that correction that I did not do my research on that. Uh, apparently there are various different forms of whistling arrows that are used to attract the, t the attention of wildlife in hunting. 
to send signals on the battlefield, which is more or less what they do in this movie, or or in competitions. So I I am wrong. Uh, this is this is the official footage. Uh, somebody can make like a soundboard of that and play it, you know, at my funeral or something. I don't know. Uh, I I I was wrong. You can delete all of your one star uh, iTunes reviews and all of your uh, yes, mean emails um, about this. <laughs> Uh, very important topic, but no, that, that, that is a cool fact. But yeah, overall, I very much enjoyed this movie, especially on second watch because I really wasn't, I was consciously being like, I'm not going to compare it to any, like, I'm just going to take this as this version of Robin Hood and not think about any other version. I kind of wish some of the songs were better or at least like more memorable. They weren't bad and, but they weren't good. If I view this as a Disney movie, the music is a letdown. If I don't view it as a Disney movie, I don't really care. But I, I, I can definitely see that perspective. It may also be, again, that like if I had not seen The Court Jester and had such high standards for silly medieval songs, then may, I might feel differently. I appreciate that they like honored like bardic culture. Just because, you know, bards and minstrels are how we have the story of Robin Hood. I thought that was pretty cool. But not, you know, not every bard is hilarious and, and wonderful. But I, I, I liked the concept of the bard, at least. They can't all be Chris Pine. I, I suppose that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think that uh, the, the only place to go from here is... To tell you all that, you know, as, as we've talked about, you know, stealing from the rich and giving to the poor, we did not steal this, but we are interested in giving to the poor or anybody else who listens to us. If you're rich and you happen to win the competition, you know, congratulations. Uh, all of that to say, if you do not follow us on Twitter, you may not be aware of the fact that we have a giveaway. We actually have three giveaways this season. So I wanted to give everybody a quick update on that. So the first way that you can enter into the giveaway is you can go to our Twitter account and we have a tweet that we would just love it if you could make sure that you're following us, retweet it, and tag a couple of friends. We're trying to expand our reach to all of the wonderful, you know, Disney fans, Disney adults, trivia junkies who need to know way too much about the production of these films. So that's that's number one. Number two is, you know, we, we think we, we have some interesting commentary in these episodes. Hopefully you do too. In the next few episodes, you might want to keep an eye out or an ear out for some keywords because there are going to be two episodes this season. We're going to, um, we're going to have some code words for you. Uh, so, so we're, we're following the, you know, example of various TV shows and radio shows. You're going to have two code words, one per movie. We're not going to tell you which movie, so you're just going to have to listen and see. But you're going to have some special words. These uh, words can be sent to us over email, or they can be sent to us on Twitter or Instagram. And if you send in your word, depending on how many people send in, we'll do a raffle to see at least two winners from that. And of course, the third way, because we are so generous in giving to all of our, our lovely fans, and also because we, I, I'm just really excited for this, 
is we're going to have a trivia game at the end of this season. So anybody who's been listening and going, wow, this is so much information. When am I ever going to have the chance to like do anything with it? Here's your chance. We are going to be hosting a live, we hope, uh, trivia competition at the end of the season. It will be, there will be no content that has not been covered in the show. You know, some of it might be uh, easier facts. Some of it might be really specific, but we're going to do a trivia game with at least three winners at the end of this season for those who have been listening and have been enjoying the Disney history as much as us. So those are your three ways. No purchase is necessary in any way, shape or form, which I say for, for legal purposes, as well as just like, you know, you don't need to give us your money, just, you know, some time or, you know, social media prowess. And if you are one of our aforementioned rich listeners and you do want to give us money, we'll uh, please it. email us. <laughs> <laughs> the show is open to donations. And at some point we will be more organized about that. But again, if you want to throw cash our way, we're definitely going to say yes. <laughs> that makes it sound like we can be bribed. We, we will still always give our honest, honest opinions, but uh, we're, we're happy to, you know, be, be paid. Anyway, Ryan, is there anything you want to say about our various giveaways? Any of the uh, products we might be giving away? Yeah, um, uh, one of the things we'll definitely be giving away is a copy of the uh, new Cinderella 4K disc release, which has a stunning restoration on it and has a ton of like bonus features and things. So that's definitely one of the things we'll be giving away. And the other thing is, I just want to thank all of our listeners, not only for listening to the show, but for giving Megan a reason to indulge buying Disney branded <laughs> objects, but not actually for herself. So she can scratch that itch of like wanting tiptoeing into the, the, you know, bottomless pool of uh, Disney memorabilia. I just want you all to know that I was, I was writing up uh, our plans for these giveaways and I went, you know, I think we need more stuff. I think our <laughs> listeners, our fans deserve more things, which led me to spend far too long on Amazon, Etsy, Hot Topic, and various other locations, finding way too much Disney stuff that I am trying desperately not to buy for myself. For instance, one of the items that I can guarantee is going to be given away is a Funko Pop figure with the original Mickey Mouse in grayscale and the modern Mickey Mouse in full color. We have two of them, and I am very tempted to steal one of them because, man, it is just so cool. So hopefully I, I am in the mindset to, to give more than I am to buy because merchandise is dangerous. It's very dangerous, uh, especially when it comes to Disney. And I will, I will also say that, you know, if this giveaway goes well, we are more likely to do them again in the future. <laughs> so if that's if that is further incentive for you to be uh, involved uh, in this, then by all means participate, and we will probably keep doing it. So, you know, there's a ton of stuff, cool stuff out there, especially for the hundredth. I actually just bought for myself a uh, headless horseman Ichabod Crane T-shirt. Because that is, despite the holiday association, that is not a movie that gets a ton of like merch. So whenever I, whenever I come across something from that, since it's one of my favorites, I was like, oh well, 
I have to get that. And luckily, a lot of wear, I wear a lot of graphic T-shirts, so um, you know it'll be it'll be in the rotation. But uh, no, this we thought this would be a fun way to sort of get people involved, say thank you, um, and you know hopefully help more people find the show. As we've said a few times before, this episode is only the twenty-fourth episode we've done, which. I say only, and that sounds like so much, but our list, which goes up to 2020, has over 400 things on it right now. So we plan to be doing this for years to come. And we, we love all of you who are here at the beginning. We are hopeful that we will get more people coming to learn about, you know, Disney classics and, of course, the hidden treasures, which I would say Robin Hood is one of. We also love throwing in some exciting things. We have some great special episodes coming up, including one of the things I have been rooting for since our first episode, which is our Halloween special. So all of that to say, we love you guys. We hope that you are enjoying our content and we are so happy to give back. If you have any other thoughts on things that we should give away, on things that we should cover in special episodes, absolutely let us know. In the meantime, you can email us at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter, DreamMindHeart, and on Instagram at DreamWithMindAndHeart. On our next episode of Dream With Mind and Heart, follow us to the second star to the right and straight on till morning as we are off to Neverland, which is going to be yet another two-part episode as we talk through all of the many, many things there are to say about Peter Pan. Before we close out, we want to say thank you to Rosalie Kicks for our artwork, Honey Badger's Folk for our theme song, and of course, as always, our beloved editor, Tessa Suela.